High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You must just a kid, a child was Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we bring you another episode of our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most significant figures in Black Hollywood, of the first half of the 20th century. The daughter of former slaves, in 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first black performer to be nominated for and win an Oscar for her role as the slave Mammy in Gone with the Wind. By 1939, Hattie had been playing versions of Mammy for decades. Mammy was shorthand for a type of caricature popularized in blackface minstrel shows. Minstrel shows began before the Civil War as a phenomenon of cultural appropriation. They featured white performers in blackface, 
cycling through a number of impressions of different stereotypes of Black people for the amusement of white audiences. Later, Black performers began creating their own minstrel shows, often adopting the tropes invented by whites, including, in some cases, blackface or even whiteface, to create subversive, satirical entertainments that white audiences received one way and black audiences received another. The history of minstrelsy is thus very, very complicated. Though originally coming from a white supremacist point of view, as the genre of live entertainment evolved, it became in some cases a showcase for Black performers to not only demonstrate their talents, but in a sense talk back to the extremely pernicious images created in white minstrel shows. As we'll see today, in Black minstrel shows, Hattie McDaniel created her own version of the Mammy stereotype, that allowed her to critique and defy what was expected of a dark-skinned, big-boned woman like herself. For her first years in Hollywood, though cast mostly as maids and cooks, Hattie continued to subvert these stereotypical roles. But after she was awarded Hollywood's highest honor for playing a character literally named Mammy, much changed. And Hattie McDaniel at once found herself enshrined as the film industry's highest-profile trailblazer and also attacked for aiding and abetting white Hollywood's racist project. It was in this complicated time that Hattie was cast as the cook, Tempe, in Song of the South, which didn't make matters easier for her. Join us, won't you? for part two of our series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. In the present day, aside from Gone with the Wind, Hattie McDaniel is perhaps most famous for defending many of her roles by saying, I can be a maid for $7 a week, or I can play a maid for $700 a week. This was an actual choice for Hattie for portions of her career. She was born in 1893, the 13th and final child of Susan and Henry McDaniel, both of whom had been born into slavery. The last name McDaniel had been given to Henry by his second owner, to whom he was sold at age nine. He grew up without a memory of his parents, or even knowledge of his exact date of birth. After Henry arrived at his new plantation in Tennessee, that state voted to secede from the Union. In January 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation, when Henry was probably around 25 years old, he fled the plantation and ended up joining the Union Army. Henry suffered a number of different injuries in the Civil War, none of which were terribly serious on their own, but they weren't treated promptly or correctly, and they combined to leave him at far from full strength by the war's end. He had lost hearing in one ear, had frostbite that had ruined the integrity of his toes, and an explosion in battle had torn apart his mouth and blown out parts of his jaw and teeth. Even if he had been healthy... Life for a former slave in post-Civil War Tennessee 
was pretty bad. Tennessee was one of the more moderate former Confederate states after the war, and still the local whites, smarting from defeat and resentful of the federal government's new rules and regulations over their lives and their attempts to conduct business without all that free labor, did everything they could to deny Black citizens meaningful freedom. And the only jobs Henry could get involved hard labor. He married and began to have children, and so despite his nagging injuries, he needed to take what he could get, which meant moving often. It was in 1886 that Henry McDaniel first filed for a military pension with the federal government. He would continue filing applications and appeals for most of the rest of his life, and most of these were denied. Though War Department medical examinations proved that Henry was impaired and not able to work full-time, the bureaucrats in charge of cutting checks insisted that there was no proof Henry's injuries were caused by the war. Hattie was born in Kansas, seven years after Henry first filed for his pension, and watching her father fight for what he felt he deserved and getting denied due to institutional racism was part of her childhood. The McDaniels lived in abject poverty as Henry struggled to find and keep work. When Hattie was five, they migrated to Denver and found there a thriving African-American community. It would be another four years before Henry would finally prevail and receive a small pension. But even after that, Hattie's mother and sisters had to work in white people's houses as cooks and maids. Little Hattie often accompanied her mother at work, where the child learned how to cook and clean, under the presumption that this would be her future career, too. That expectation was complicated after Hattie's brothers, Sam and Otis, decided to pursue show business as a route to easier money than physical labor. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com 
slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Patty began singing and dancing when she was still a child, and eventually she joined her brothers in their act. By 1910, when she was 16, Hattie had dropped out of school to go on the road. The McDaniels had some success as a touring act, but in between gigs, back in Denver, Hattie had to support herself by working as a cook or a maid. She married for the first time at age 17, the first of four marriages, and the only one which would involve long periods of cohabitation. But married life didn't do anything to quell Hattie's ambition. In 1914, when she was 21, Hattie developed her own all-female minstrel show. This was a song and dance review performed by Hattie and other black women, all wearing blackface. White minstrel shows, in which white people wore blackface to lampoon their racist stereotype versions of black people, had been around since before the Civil War. In a typical show, the white performers would cycle through characters like Jim Crow, a racist caricature of a lazy slave, which would become the namesake for the segregationist laws of the early 20th century. There was also the Mammy, the type with which Hattie would become most associated. Mammies were usually sexless, overweight, somewhat older women who lived to cook fried chicken for their white masters and raise their white children. All of the stereotypes that made their way into minstrel shows were often unkind, but the Mammy added sexism to racism by suggesting that black women had no desires or ambitions of their own aside for keeping house for white people. While many of the male minstrel stereotypes were about avoiding work, the mammy was depicted as essentially choosing post-emancipation to replicate the life of a slave. After the war, black performers began doing their own version of the white minstrel shows as a way of turning the derogatory joke around. If the white shows had been based on getting white audiences to laugh at black people for being lazy, grotesque, grinning, thieving, and worse, the black versions of these shows were intended to laugh at white people for believing that black people were no more than the stereotypes. Hattie, an actual part-time domestic worker who looked the part of the mammy even in her early 20s, was proving that she had skills and desires far beyond what typical whites assumed of mammies by not only mounting her own show, but also writing original songs to perform in that show to better spoof the white stereotype of women who looked like her. Hattie's show was a big success, and she began planning a one-woman review in which she would play multiple characters of different races and nationalities. But then her husband suddenly died, and Hattie canceled the new show and went back to domestic work. Hattie took a full year off from performing 
and then slowly began trying to make a name for herself again, while always going back to domestic work when performing didn't pay the bills, which it usually didn't. Pre-Hollywood, Hattie would find the most success as a blues singer. This was another way she would subvert the mammy stereotype, where the mammy was expected to be a kind of mother for hire with no inner life. Hattie sang songs that frankly addressed sex and relationships. She sang about wanting men and not putting up with being treated badly by them. In I Thought I'd Do It, she kicks a lover to the curb to find a new one who loves her better. Sweet milk turns to clabber when there ain't no eyes you see. This flame was made for loving, so you won't do for me. I can't keep from thinking of your evil deeds. Thinking of you sowing all them evil seeds. Oh, they ain't no use of sniffle, whimper and whine. I've took you back for your last, last time. So as ye so so shall ye reap. And so I've changed my mind early this morning. And so I've changed my mind. Another of Hattie's songs was called Dentist Chair Blues. I can't find a recording of Hattie singing it, but here's an excerpt from a version sung by Laura Bryant. Don't make me pull my hair. He funny something into my cavity. What is that now, Doctor? What is that funny thing? I see you shooting a funny something into my cavity. Oh, I know what that is. That's that cocaine and soothing liquid to ease my pain for me. Hattie found some success in vaudeville, but always found herself forced back into domestic work. In 1931, when Hattie was 38, she decided to take one last stab at show business by moving to Los Angeles. Her brother Sam was already there, doing a local radio show and playing bit parts in movies, including The Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney. Her brother's connections helped Hattie get a foot in the door, first in radio, where for a time she had her own show, called Hi-Hat Hattie and Her Boys. Soon she was making more money in a week as a film extra than she could in a full month as a maid. One of McDaniel's biographers, Jill Watts, speculates that when Hattie first started working in Hollywood, she was looking for a way to survive the Depression, and so she was happy to make literally hundreds of minor appearances as on-screen cooks, maids, and other stereotypical roles. Not just because it was much easier and better money than actually working as an off-screen cook or maid, but also because she felt her real art was never going to be in movies— but in the kind of song-and-dance stage work that she had been doing for almost 20 years. 
The persona that she presented as a blues singer allowed Hattie to speak truth to power and challenge the American racist and sexist status quo to an extent that it was impossible to imagine Hollywood movies ever matching in 1931. And yet, just a year later, Hattie was cast in the first of a series of parts in which she appeared to be both playing into Hollywood's racism while also subtly subverting it. In Blonde Venus, which we've discussed before on this podcast, after strip-teasing her way out of a gorilla costume, Marlena Dietrich's duplicitous showgirl-slash-mom, Helen, goes on the run in the Deep South. She travels with a black maid named Cora, played by Hattie. Cora looked like a movie stereotype of a domestic worker, But she didn't behave like the docile, totally subservient mammy that usually moved in and out of the movie frame without drawing attention away from the white star. Instead, in Blonde Venus, Hattie began playing servants who openly look down upon, roll their eyes at, or talk back to their white female employers, or white authority figures in general. In movies like Alice Adams, China Seas, and The Mad Miss Manton, playing servants who quote-unquote forget their place, the contempt for the people she's supposed to be subservient to, broadcasted by McDaniel, becomes a kind of in-joke on the racist worldview of all Hollywood movies at that point. To white audiences, Hattie's mouthy maids functioned as comic relief— an embodiment of the foolishness of the mammy stereotype. Few perceived it as the commentary on that stereotype, or the subversion of the white fantasy of how black people should behave, that it clearly was. Some of Hattie's sullen, back-talking, eye-rolling maids definitely would have been fired if they had been so insubordinate in real life, So few actual domestic workers, who needed their jobs, would have risked expressing themselves at work the way Hattie did on screen. Eventually, studios began creating comically belligerent maids for Hattie to play, but this was only after she began adding much to what was on the page with her performances. For instance, in Alice Adams, she plays a cook hired by a Katherine Hepburn character who is pretending to be of a higher social class than she really is. In their scenes together, Hattie knows better than Hepburn how a lady of the class the white woman is pretending to be part of would really act. When her mistress commits faux pas, we know how serious they are by observing McDaniel's withering glares and this-is-beneath-me body language. Hattie signed her first studio contract and joined the Screen Actors Guild in 1934, when she was cast in a John Ford-directed Will Rogers vehicle called Judge Priest. Set in the Reconstruction-era South, Judge Priest had Hattie playing a loyal servant working in the house of a Confederate veteran. This part was much more conventional than the maid roles Hattie had been able to put her personal stamp on. And here, she cheerfully served her white master while antagonizing his other black servant, played by Stepan Fetchett. Stepan Fetchett was probably the most famous black actor in Hollywood in the 1930s. 
His real name was Lincoln Perry, but his persona was summed up in his stage name. He always played an amusingly bumbling servant. Judge Priest contrasts Fetchett as an embodiment of the white Southerner's notion of the bad black man, lazy, inarticulate, prone to stealing, with Hattie as the good black servant who keeps the bad one in line in order to provide her white master with a more pleasant home. Judge Priest was an example of a wave of films fantasizing and romanticizing the Southern past, which gained popularity through the 1930s and culminated in Gone with the Wind. Though her role in Judge Priest did more to support the racist patriarchy than any speaking part Hattie had previously had in a movie, it was also a bigger part, and it made her more visible to the executives in charge of casting. As a result, she steadily got more movie work, and if that meant she had less time to do her truly subversive song and dance act, she figured that her increasing presence in Hollywood movies was also important. You couldn't integrate Hollywood by not accepting the work you were offered there. It was because of her visibility that she was at the top of mind on the rare occasion when producers were looking for an African-American actress for a decent part, such as in the second film production of Showboat, made by Universal in 1936 and starring actor and activist Paul Robeson. Here are Hattie and Robeson singing a duet in the movie, in which she is in full, feisty, mammy persona. No matter what you say, I still suit me. Does you ever wash the dishes? Does you do the things I wishes? Does you do them? No, you don't. Will you do them? No, you won't. When there's any working to it, I'm the one that's got to do it. When it's raining, who's the fella uses up the whole umbrella? Selfish as a man can be. No matter what you say, I still suit me. Movies with significant roles for multiple black actors, like Showboat, were made sporadically by Hollywood studios between 1929 and the end of the 1940s. And they were kind of a double-edged sword. They certainly gave someone like Hattie or Paul Robeson more to do than the typical film starring mostly white people. But at the same time, even all-black cast films such as Hearts in Dixie, an early sound film featuring a breakout role for Steppen Fetchett, or the later musical Cabin in the Sky— were written and directed by white studio stalwarts who had little to no understanding of what black audiences wanted. In fact, it was presumed these films wouldn't be worth doing unless they appealed to white audiences. So even though they offered unusually substantial roles for black actors, these actors were essentially there to perform a white idea of blackness. After Showboat, Hattie entered a new echelon of Hollywood, even signing with a white agent named William Micklejohn. She was not being given star treatment. She was still largely playing marginalized roles, as were even the most prominent black performers in Hollywood. But already, she began feeling a backlash from the black community. 
African-American newspapers had been forcefully decrying the representation of black Americans in Hollywood movies, and one columnist called for black audiences to boycott Hollywood until the situation improved. In this climate, Hattie would be given the biggest film part of her career, which, paradoxically, would catapult her to an echelon of stardom that no member of her race had reached before, while also dooming her to criticism that she was a traitor to her race for the rest of time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We've talked about Gone with the Wind on this podcast before, of course. But for a recap, this film, which was released in 1939 and swiftly became the highest grossing film of its time and is still the highest grossing film ever released in North America, adjusting for inflation, was based on a 1936 novel of the same name, which won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Atlanta native Margaret Mitchell's epic soap opera, told the story of a rich white slave-owning family brought to ruin by an unjust war and powerfully evoked nostalgia for a simpler, lost time in which men were men and women were women and slaves were slaves and masters were masters and everybody was much happier than they would be later trying to adjust to a new paradigm in which black people were allegedly human beings and women could vote and male landowners actually had to pay for labor. In all seriousness, the post-Civil War period was a difficult one, largely because white Southerners were so resistant to changing their inherently racist worldview and lifestyles that they made it extremely difficult for former slaves to seize the freedom that they had been supposedly granted. And as we've seen in the story of Hattie McDaniel's father, the struggles of emancipated slaves to be taken seriously as fully-fledged Americans— had wide reverberations well into the 20th century. The project of Gone with the Wind was to sucker its readers, and eventually its viewers, into fantasizing that those struggles and reverberations could have been avoided if only we had never gotten rid of slavery. Though Hattie McDaniel was by now Hollywood's most recognizable on-screen mammy type, she was considered an unlikely choice for the role of Mammy in producer David O. Selznick's film adaptation of Gone with the Wind. Hattie's characters had to this point largely been comic, and Gone with the Wind was designed as a serious film with no room for clowning. But at the urging of Bing Crosby, who was friends with Hattie's brother Sam, Selznick agreed to screen test her. Hattie tested alongside another actress, who was considered a long shot to make it into the movie, Vivian Lee. Selznick was so blown away by the chemistry between the two actresses in the test that he cast them both, 
with Lee playing tempestuous heroine Scarlett O'Hara, Mammy's owner. Selznick believed he was making a progressive film. He believed this because he had made the decision not to dramatize some pretty rough portions of Mitchell's novel, including scenes justifying and celebrating both the Ku Klux Klan and the practice of lynching. He also changed the novel's black villains into white characters for the movie. But despite the persistent urging of NAACP leader Walter White and black editorial writers the nation over, Selznick refused to hire an African-American advisor on the film. Even worse, Selznick hired a white woman as a technical advisor and put her in charge of teaching the black performers a geographically and historically specific dialect. Selznick's unresponsiveness to suggestions from the black community led to frequent attacks on the project before anyone saw the film. And the target of many of these attacks was Hattie, who critics believed was allowing herself to be bought off by the white establishment to condone Hollywood's and America's present-day racism by appearing in this slavery-celebrating film. As one columnist wrote, quote, It means about $2,000 for Miss McDaniel in individual advancement, and nothing in racial advancement. Money aside, this was by far the highest profile and most substantial part Hattie had ever been offered in Hollywood, and she took it for the same reason any performer of any race would take a part that they believed would allow them to become a bigger star and play bigger and better roles going forward. And she believed that there could be nobility in playing a slave. Hattie told an African-American newspaper that she aimed to imbue the character with inspiration from great Black women of the Civil War era. She mentioned Harriet Tubman by name, but she also talked about the mothers of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, women who may have had their feet planted in the cement of slavery, but who sired a generation of civil rights activists and pioneers. Of course, she didn't say anything like this in the white press, where she humbly suggested that she just hoped to do justice to Margaret Mitchell's creation. Selznick's publicity for Hattie made no mention of the fact that she herself was the daughter of former slaves. If playing Mammy meant holding her tongue and her nose and pretending to be on the same page as the white people in charge, even as they casually and systematically demeaned her, well, in Hattie's mind, that's what all black people did to some extent every day. And she felt she had it a lot better than most black people. She certainly had it better than most black actors in Hollywood. And part of that was because she had seemed to be totally compliant on set, unlike other stars who had been virtually blacklisted after standing up for themselves. Hattie got in her rebellion where she could in her performances, which telegraphed to black audiences a disdain for the all-white power structure while still conforming to the letter of white expectations. This is what she aimed to do in Gone with the Wind. Though playing a stereotype in a story about white supremacy, Hattie believed she could bring the same sly, humanizing critique to Mammy that she had been practicing since her satirical minstrel shows, 
25 years earlier. Hattie's mammy is devoted to Scarlett, but she's also opinionated and critical of her mistress and her boy-crazy foolishness. And her commentary on the white people she serves is threaded throughout the film almost as a signal to the audience not to accept the white supremacy of the story at face value. But that signal was all but buried in the film's sweep and spectacle, of which McDaniel was also a crucial part. The range of emotion Hattie displayed as Mammy, from jaded disdain to tearfully urgent empathy, went way beyond the cartoons of smiling slaves and servants happily working or dancing on command that most Hollywood films demanded of black performers. Hattie McDaniel's performance as Mammy convinces you that the character is part of Scarlett O'Hara's family, which, of course, is incredibly insidious. Gone with the Wind was a massive phenomenon, and it swept the Oscars that year. Hattie was nominated opposite her co-star in the film, Olivia de Havilland, but Selznick put the weight of his campaigning behind McDaniel. Already that night, Hattie had made history by becoming the first black person to attend the Oscars ceremony. And then she won. The presenter, who you'll hear first in this clip, was Faye Bainter, who had won the same prize the previous year for her role in another plantation movie, Jezebel. I'm really especially happy that I'm chosen to present this particular plaque. To me, it seems more than just a plaque of gold. It opens the doors of this room, moves back the walls, and enables us to embrace the whole of America, an America that we love, an America that, almost alone in the world today, recognizes and pays tribute to those who give their best, regardless of creed, race, or color. It is with the knowledge that this entire nation will stand and salute the presentation of this plaque that I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting roles during 1939 to Hattie McDaniel. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry, and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. Bainter's pompous speech is an indication that, in celebrating Hattie, Hollywood was also celebrating its own enlightenment. It was such a good, woke look to be in the Hattie McDaniel business that even before the Oscar, Selznick signed her to a long-term contract— But Selznick, who was never great at generating material for his contract stars and usually made a profit loaning them out to other studios, did not seem to know how to capitalize on Hattie's breakthrough. 
She shouldn't have gone back to playing run-of-the-mill domestic workers providing comic relief in white-dominant movies after Gone with the Wind. But Hollywood didn't know how to use an actress who looked like her in a more substantive way. With no parts for her in his films, Selznick sent Hattie out on a personal appearance tour to promote Gone with the Wind. These appearances were common in the 1940s, bringing talent to various cities to perform a pre-show before premiere screenings of a movie, allowed exhibitors and distributors to charge higher ticket prices and drum up local publicity. Hattie was allowed to create her own act virtually without input from Selznick. She put together a show involving a live recreation of two scenes from Gone with the Wind, in which McDaniel would play all the parts, including those of Vivian Lee and Clark Gable, plus performances of songs Hattie had composed as companion pieces to the movie. These songs were called Mammy Meditation No. 1 and Mammy Meditation No. 2, and they helped to reframe her renditions of scenes from the movie as subtle spoofs rather than fully earnest tributes. In Mammy Meditation No. 1, Hattie sang, You can talk about your mammy, dear old mammy, yes of your, but things is changing nowadays, and mammy's getting bored. These shows were performed in some African-American-only theaters, but at Hattie's insistence, most of her tour locations were all white movie houses. She was literally telling white people that the Mammy character was dissatisfied and daring those audiences, or her white bosses, to stop her. Selznick didn't like the show, but not because he picked up on Hattie's insubordination. Selznick's worry was that the act was too sexy, which was another way Hattie, when allowed to direct her own persona, defied white expectations of what a mammy should be. After this tour, Selznick sold Hattie's contract to Warner Brothers, where a part was created for Hattie in the Betty Davis and Mary Astor melodrama, The Great Lie. This is a very good movie, but Hattie's part as a maid in it is pretty forgettable. For the most part, Warner Brothers would also fail to make the most of McDaniel, but Hattie would appear in another very good Betty Davis movie in a much better part, and this would be the only film she appeared in to actually take contemporary racism seriously. Directed by John Huston, In This Our Life starred Davis as a reckless and heartless rich girl who kills a man with her car and then frames the son of her black maid for the crime. Hattie played the maid-slash-mother of the wrongfully accused man, and she got one great scene in which she spoke to the situation she and her son found themselves in. Child, this seems hard to say, but what Miss Danny told the police about my poor boy, they ain't a word of truth, so help me. Then Perry had nothing. Minerva, how do you know that? Because Perry come home from the office, and that was about six o'clock, and he stayed home all evening studying some Lego books. But he... he took the car to wash it. Didn't he pick it up on the way? No, ma'am. Miss Stanley called up and said she's going to use the car and went out to bother. But why didn't Perry say that? Why didn't he tell the police? I don't understand. The police just come and took him off and 
He tried to tell them, but they don't listen to no colored boy. Minerva, you wouldn't say that unless... Miss Roy, I ain't never lied to you and your daddy all my life. And nothing can make me lie. Not even Paris. In 1942, when In This Our Life was released, many states and cities still had their own censorship boards who could reject all or parts of movies, even after the Hayes office had cleared them for nationwide release. The Atlanta censor deemed In This Our Life radical and offensive to whites and cut Hattie's speech and any reference to racism. In a letter to Hollywood's censor-in-chief, the Atlanta censor blamed the movie industry for inspiring, quote, the increased impertinence of the Negroes in spite of things done for their own good. Atlanta had the right to censor the movie in Atlanta, but somehow the Atlanta version of the movie was shipped to some African-American theaters in New York. Whether this happened by innocent mistake or not is unclear, But when it became public that Black audiences had been denied access to the first studio film in which a Black performer bemoaned present-day racism, there was much outcry. Humiliated and frustrated, Hattie asked to be released from her contract, and Warner Brothers agreed. Hattie would find work as an independent contractor, mostly playing maids, But her characterizations had changed since Gone with the Wind. Now Hattie's domestic workers lost their edge. They now seemed devoted to the system that the actress had, in the 1930s, been able to critique. For nearly a decade in Hollywood, Hattie had found her options and opportunities limited by the unwillingness of white producers to challenge the status quo and expand the depiction of Black people on screen. Beginning in 1942, Hattie began to feel constrained by the fight to alter that status quo. When Walter White of the NAACP launched an aggressive campaign to get the studios to agree to provide more and less stereotypical roles for African-American actors, the Black performers who had been working in Hollywood in those stereotypical roles began to feel threatened. They believed that the studios would respond one of two ways to such agitation. Either they would freak out and back away from casting Black performers at all, giving roles that would have gone to someone like Hattie to a white actress, or if they did create more and better roles for Black performers, the studios would give those parts to new faces, because the Black actors and actresses already established in Hollywood had all been typecast so much that the producers would claim, the audience wouldn't buy them in other roles. Either way, the changes the NAACP were proposing would mean that performers like Hattie would lose work. And so she and other performers of her generation fought back against the efforts at reform. In interviews... Hattie would acknowledge a need for change, while also maintaining that the pioneers like herself who paved the way should not be pushed aside. In fear that the screen would be totally whitewashed, she argued for maintaining representation in movies for Black working-class people. 
but she also hinted that newcomers to the scene should be forced to pay their dues before leapfrogging over the old guard. In response to an NAACP conference at which Walter White introduced new MGM signee Lena Horne as an example of the new face of Black Hollywood, McDaniel was candid. I naturally resent being completely ignored at the convention after I have struggled for 11 years to open up opportunities for our group in the industry, she said, and then she added a knock at Lena Horne. You can imagine my chagrin when the only person called to the platform was a young woman from New York who had just arrived in Hollywood and had not yet made her first picture. Hattie apparently didn't mean to antagonize Lena Horne, and according to Horne, the older actress invited the newcomer into her impressive home and gave her the useful advice to take whatever work she needed to take in order to support her family. Hattie's real beef was with White from the NAACP, who only doubled down on his argument after that convention. In May 1943, he wrote an editorial in which he called on Hollywood to end depictions of Black people performing menial labor and warned that any actors who accepted stereotypical roles would be held responsible for, quote, playing their roles with sincerity and dignity instead of mugging and playing the clown before the camera. Hattie took this as a direct attack on the players instead of the game. She petitioned the Screen Actors Guild to censure White for interfering in the union's business of petitioning on behalf of performers. But SAG declined to get involved. Still feeling threatened, especially since her career prospects seemed to be drying up, in her emotional state, Hattie made a major faux pas. At a big, star-studded NAACP event, Hattie was asked to give a keynote speech. In that speech, she called Lena Horne a fine example of, quote, the new N-word womanhood. Recognizing immediately that the audience was shocked and disturbed, McDaniel quickly added, I said Negro womanhood, as if pretending she hadn't said what they all had heard her say. Already targeted for what her critics perceived as internalized racism, this did not help Hattie McDaniel's image. When it was reported on in the black press, Hattie felt that the NAACP and the activist journalists on their side had thrown her to the wolves. She would refuse to participate in NAACP events and meetings going forward. Shortly after this incident, the 51-year-old McDaniel announced that she was pregnant. She was not pregnant, but the jury is out as to whether a vulnerable Hattie was deluded into believing that she was, or if she made up a miracle pregnancy to distract from the NAACP speech scandal. As a distraction, it worked, but Hattie's movie offers were drying up. As she had feared, the agitation from the NAACP had resulted in fewer parts for Black performers, particularly pre-war stalwarts such as herself. 
And so it came to pass that in 1944, with little work on offer, Hattie accepted the absolutely thankless role of Tempe in Song of the South. Hattie needed the work, but there's no indication she saw taking this role as debasing herself ideologically. Playing Tempe kept her on opposite sides of the divide from Walter White, who expressed concern over the project from the beginning, and then, when Disney declined to allow him to offer input, decried the finished film. Later critics would recognize Tempe as the most retrograde, submissive role Hattie McDaniel played. Though the exact year in which Song of the South is set is left vague, Tempe reads as a former slave who has chosen to stay with the family she's worked for her entire life rather than seek a free but uncertain life on her own. If the script's depiction of the complacent servant who devotes her life to her former owners wasn't bad enough, Hattie makes no apparent effort to add layers to this character. Disney wanted to bottle some of the the gone-with-the-wind magic, but Tempe has none of the power or willingness to confront authority that made Mammy memorable. Tempe calls to mind not Mammy, and not any of the belligerent maids Hattie played so memorably in movies of the 1930s, but instead, she calls to mind the character in Judge Priest, who was subservient to whites and a self-appointed check on her fellow black servants. In between Gone with the Wind and Song of the South, glamorous actresses and musicians like Lena Horne began appearing in mainstream Hollywood movies. The roles being created for Lena Horne would never have been given to Hattie McDaniel, but those more modern images made Tempe, who only sings while happily working in the plantation house, seem even more retrograde. Walter White and the NAACP were not successfully doing much to change the number and quality of opportunities for Blacks in Hollywood, as evidenced by the glass wall Lena Horne kept bumping into in her efforts to cross over into the mainstream, which you can hear about on episodes 33 and 82 of this podcast. But Hattie still felt the Black community's protests against Hollywood were doing her more harm than good. She had a partner in this point of view in Hedda Hopper, who in a column in late 1947 presented an interview with Hattie as part of a defense of the white Hollywood establishment against criticism from African Americans. Hattie was able to make some good points, such as, when you ask me not to play the parts, what have you got in return? But these points were rolled into Hedda's inherently white supremacist worldview, which criticized Black activists for not knowing their place and for getting in the way of capitalism Hollywood style. As Hopper wrote, Hattie, I discovered, had not been victimized by whites. She had been attacked by certain members of her own race simply because she had tried to earn an honest dollar by playing roles those critics thought degrading to Negroes. Her part in Song of the South caused many theaters to be picketed. 
The fact is, Hollywood's standard way of dealing with minorities or those in opposition to their general project in any kind of ideological way was to try to win favor with these outsiders by offering them tokens. The hope was that they would be so distracted by the offering, if not the token itself, and become so worried about losing the token or future offers that they'd cease to fight for more. In the case of Hattie McDaniel, this worked. With the movies A Battleground, Hattie finally made the jump to radio. Seven years after William Paley of CBS had declared that a black woman couldn't headline her own radio show, Hattie was hired by CBS to star as the titular maid in Beulah, a radio comedy that had previously starred white men in the audio version of Blackface. Beulah was such a hit with Hattie behind the mic that it was transformed from a weekly series into one that ran five days a week. In 1950, Beulah was adapted into a television show starring Ethel Waters because Hattie was busy on the radio. But the TV adaptation didn't work, and after a few months, it was retooled and recast with Hattie in the lead. This was what Hattie was working on in the summer of 1951 when she collapsed in her home. While treating her for a heart attack, Doctors discovered that Hattie had advanced breast cancer. A little over a year later, on October 26th, 1952, Hattie McDaniel died. Hattie will always be the first African-American to win an Oscar, the first to even attend the ceremony. But for the next couple of generations, she was written off as a mere mammy stereotype, Remembered for her fight to preserve the status quo that allowed her to play maids, and not for the ways in which she subverted the inherently racist system before being crowned by that system as the first actress to surpass white expectations for black performance. Keep Hattie's subversion in mind, because next week, we're going to talk about the ways in which minstrel culture was rolled into Hollywood movies and specifically Song of the South, in ways that only served to resurrect the bad old days, without comment. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. This episode was edited by Jared O'Connell. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. You can subscribe on Stitcher. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's some big news. After five years of You Must Remember This, we're finally selling merch. Go to podswag.com slash remember now to find You Must Remember This t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, all of which are perfect for holiday season gifts. We'll be adding more items to the store in the future, including signed copies of my books. That's podswag.com slash remember. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Oh,